Jane Smiley is the author of nearly 20 novels, including the best-selling King Lear-inspired A Thousand Acres, for which she received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1992. Her non-fiction includes a memoir, biographies, including one on Charles Dickens, an essay on knitting, Why Bother?, and A Celebration of Fiction with 13 Ways of Looking at a Novel. We last spoke to Jane Smiley about Golden Age. This was a three, uh, part three of a trilogy, a multi-generational family story that takes place over a hundred years and begins in the heart of Iowa. The ever-versatile writer's latest work is a collection of essays that explore ancient Icelandic sagas, the paucity of maternal voices in literature, the radical muckraking, child development through examining little women, and history versus historical fiction. Throughout the most important questions are personal reflections on Jane Smiley's own upbringing and its influence on her writing. It's her first non-fiction volume on writing since 2005's best-selling 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. These new, or rather these collected essays, are sourced from years of writing. They were just to explore various things that popped up as I was you know, reading, I've always been an avid reader. And so um, when I started writing books, I knew that I had to read a lot in order to understand the the places, the times, and the people that I was going to write about. So the issues came up as I learned more about things that we didn't learn about in school. A good example might be what you describe as one of your more controversial essays. This was published in The Atlantic nearly 30 years ago, Say It Ain't So, Huck. And it compares Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin and Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, one you'd read as a child, the other not to your mid-40s. Yes. The different treatment of these two novels prompted you to, to anger of sorts. Can you explain? Well, when I... Um, when I was reading uh, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, it was generally believed that um, it wasn't very interesting and that this enslaved characters, um, I mean, let, what, how am I going to say this? The slang term Uncle Tom was basically supposed to mean a suck up. And when I started reading the book, A, nobody had ever mentioned the women characters, which I thought were very interesting. And B, she Stowe was very good at describing Uncle Tom's inner life and what he believed and what he thought he had to do in order to, you know, be saved when he went, when he died. And she was much better at that than. Mark Twain was at describing the inner life of especially Jim, but even Huck too. Um, And one of the things I read about when I was trying to figure out how Mark Twain had put together Uncle Tom's, I mean, put together Huckleberry Finn was that when um, the boat went down below the Mississippi, the Missouri line into the south the missouri borderline into the south twain put 
the book away, the manuscript, because he didn't know what to do now. Previously, it had been about Huck and Jim, but but here Huck, supposedly the best character, the most important character, was taking Jim into real slave territory. And so he put it away. And I could really understand that because every author, including me at the time, has said, uh-oh, I'm, I got myself in trouble. I don't know how to get out of this. And um, so he put it away and then he decided to take it out and sort of push Jim to the side so that he could keep the story going down the river. And that was appalling to me that that would be considered America's greatest novel, a novel in which an enslaved person is just considered not worth ex not worth exploring. And so then I picked up um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I was so impressed by every little detail, everything that she focused on. And that, I wasn't angry, but I was annoyed that that one was overlooked and Huckleberry Finn was so revered. What was and so that's why I wrote the essay. And what was the reaction when that essay was published? <laughs> Is that a story in itself? <laughs> that's, those were before the days of comments, you know. That's when... A, when readers wrote actual letters to the, the magazine. And according to the editor, the magazine got more negative responses to that essay than any article they'd ever written, they'd ever published before that. And I thought, well, good. <laughs> That's the mark of an impactful essay, perhaps. <laughs> but this also revealed to you how sheltered your own childhood been, had been from issues of race and class. And throughout this collection, we learn more about your childhood influences on you as a writer. This is another example of how reading opened the door to learning. Yes, I think that's always true. But I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which politically is an incredibly interesting town historically. Um, for a long time, when St. when Missouri was a slave state, there was a, a reasonably large free population in St. Louis. And before the Civil War, one of the wealthiest people in St. Louis was an African-American woman. Um, that, uh, the, there, there had also been a Supreme Court decision that if a slave lived outside of slave territory for two years, I think this was from about 1820, then he or she became a free person. But then in St. Louis, I'm sorry to say, in the 1850s, they the Supreme Court passed the Dred Scott decision, which took away those privileges again. Um, and so when I grew up in St. Louis, we knew that the history of St. Louis was, was, had its ups and downs, but we also knew that it was a really brilliant, beautiful town. And... I really liked growing up there, um, going to different neighborhoods, looking out on the Mississippi River, looking out on the Missouri River. And I really had a sense that a lot of things emanated from that town, from that city. 
So um, there was a way in which I thought that growing up in St. Louis was what gave me the desire to explore, both in a literary way and also in a literary, literal way, you know, to travel, to see different landscapes, to see different cultures. Um, so, you know, that was being born in St. Louis. Or not born there, but living there. On that subject of your childhood, you, you dedicate an essay to your absent father. Uh, you say that the gifts you got from him were his height and his absence. And, and yes. what do you mean when you say his absence was a gift? Well, my father was diagnosed when I was about a year old. My father was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I don't think that he would be diagnosed exactly with that now. But um, it was evident from my mother's memories of him after they were married that he was hard to handle and that the more um, crazy he became, he also became more domineering. And he did come for a visit at one point when I was about five. They split up when I was about one. I visited him in an institution, I think, when I was about three, um, and he was inside what you might, what you would possibly call a cage. He was inside a, a enclosed area. This was up in Michigan. That's where he was from. And and then when I was about five, he came to visit in the little apartment where we lived, and. Um, I came out of the bathroom and he pulled down my pants to see if I'd wiped myself properly. And I thought, Ugh, who's this guy? You know? Um, so I think he would be diagnosed slightly differently now, maybe bipolar disorder or um, what's the word? Um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And apparently, according to my relatives who knew him, he had a pretty, he, he calmed down and he became a decent person, but he wasn't into allowing me or my mother to do what we wanted. And we wanted always to do what we wanted. My mother wanted to be a newspaper woman. She wanted to be a writer. She wanted um, to travel. She wanted to explore. And basically, I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And I think he would have been very domineering. So I, I thought I was lucky to not have to deal with that. His absence gave you freedom. And indeed, you write yeah. also of the benefits of being a girl in the shadow of your cousins and stepbrother, all boys. A girl who's overlooked has a good chance of not learning what she's supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> there was a freedom in, in your circumstances. Yes, we we did have, um, we lived in a, a, a nice middle-class neighborhood in a town called Webster Groves. And, you know, in those days, there were families of with 10 kids or four kids or eight kids or five kids everywhere. And the parents couldn't really keep track of them. And so we ran around, we explored. Fortunately, the places 
that we were able to run around to weren't particularly dangerous. And we had a nice school in the neighborhood and I walked to school every day. And so there was a kind of freedom. I, I just saw my my cousin uh, not too long ago. And we had a laugh about the fact that he told me when I was, he must've been, I must've been six and he must've been nine. And there was a little train tracks up the hill from us. And he took me up to the train tracks and he told me that I had to stand six inches away from the train tracks, not to be sucked under when the train went by. And so I believed every word he said, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I, I enjoyed my cousins. I enjoyed the neighborhood kids. I enjoyed running around. Um, and I enjoyed, I really learned to be observant. I had to be observant in order not to get in trouble because I was a good girl and didn't want to get in trouble. But I also enjoyed being observant because so many kids were so different from each other. And I liked to watch what they liked to do. I liked to see if I wanted to do the same thing. And so, yeah, it was a great way to grow up, actually. Let's address an essay that gets to uh, being a grown-up. It addresses literary production versus human reproduction. And you consider the number of writing greats you'd admired who were not parents, Eliot, Wolfe, Austen, the Brontes, Emily Dickinson, but also male writers, Kafka, mm -hmm. Keats, Wordsworth, Whitman. You come at this issue of writer versus parent or writer v parent in many ways in this essay when did where did you begin with this contemplation well when i um was writing my first book i realized once i had my daughter and i was still writing and also still teaching at a university iowa state university that juggling all of this was difficult, but also really interesting because I noticed how different. So then four years after my first one was born, the second one was born. And from the first day of their birth, after their births, I noticed how different they were. And I thought, why doesn't, why hasn't anybody explored this? Why hasn't anybody explored how children grow up, how brothers and sisters relate to one another, what it's like to be the parent of a small child. And I decided, well, since I I, I could do it, I was going to do it. And so that's the, the, the name of that essay is Can Mothers Think? And of course they can. Of course we knew that because we had our own mothers who did their own thinking. But the world was changing, and we had access to daycare. Um, feminism had give us, given us a voice, and I just wanted to talk about that aspect of feminism, the, the feminist mother. It, a key point of Can Mothers Think, evident in its provocative title, is the absence of the mother's voice, life, experience, from much of the literary canon. Uh, has that changed over time, Jane? 
I think it's changed. Um, it depends on who you like to read, but there are plenty of women writers now and they write about the things that they're interested in. And some of them write about motherhood. There's, there's a little reason, there's a little kind of pause in writing about children because the reader might think you're writing about your own children rather than about imagined children. But um, I I tried to write about children in the um, last hundred years trilogy and in and in some of my other books too, because I just found having children was so fascinating. It's interesting in the essay you explore the different perspectives, the the concept that the writer needs to be utterly untethered to any commitments, any sense of security at all would be one. Then there seemed to be this uh, concept of, yes, you can write, but just have one child. Again, an es another essay, I think, um, by another writer that prompted a response yeah. from you. It has quite a history, doesn't it? This concept of does parenting imperil writing well it so depends on your access to childcare. so when i when my daughters were young i just happened to have gotten a job in ames iowa which is where iowa state university was and iowa state had the child development school so a lot of the women's students would come in from small towns or farms go to the child development school and then they would get jobs at the local daycare. And so there are plenty of daycare places. And my daughter, my daughter started going to daycare when they were two years old. And the daycare that my daughters went to was about two blocks from my house and right across from the grocery store. So it was an incredible luxury to have the time to write, to know that the that my daughters were having a really good time at daycare and that they were also learning how to socialize long before I did when I was a kid, because I was an only child. And that as soon as I picked them up, I could go to the grocery store and get what get whatever I needed for dinner. And I, I always thought that teaching at Iowa State for many reasons, but also just for living in Ames, was a really a big boon to my career because I had friends who also wanted to be writers, but they moved to places like Brooklyn or other places and they didn't have the kind of daycare that I had. They had to hire a nanny or they didn't have daycare at all. So it was, it was still difficult for them, whereas it was easy for me. So the title of the book the questions that matter most. It differs slightly from the much more specifically penned essay uh, of a similar title. Uh, it's more general. But for you now, as a writer, what are the questions that matter most? Well, I think it's for all of us in the world that the, the biggest question is whether we're going to survive and whether it's worth it. I mean, um, there's so many things going on in the world that, you know, I just, just this very morning, 
And I skipped over this article, I have to say. It might have been in The Guardian, but um, it was about the U.S. ramping up their nuclear uh, weapons. And I thought, oh, you're kidding me. I mean, I grew up um, during the time of the first uh, weapons era in the 50s and 60s and I was terrified and I thought we were going to be I thought we were all going to be killed and then that sort of subsided and now they're really they're starting again are you kidding me so um I I think that's the question that matters most are we going to survive and if we do will it be worth it and if what's going to happen to the earth is it going to be destroyed when if we're destroyed, you know, and what does the destruction of the earth mean? And, you know, there's always the issue of climate change. I mean, these are things that I think about, but I'm 74 years old. I think about them mostly in terms of what are my children and grandchildren's lives going to be like, not about my own. What do you teach what do you seek to impart or to foster from the young writers you work with now do they face an easier or a harder path than you did I just want you know there's two things I want them to do I want them to spell properly and use proper grammar and I want them to look around and get ideas from what they see around them I have just been reading, I'm no longer teaching, but I I stopped about three years ago, but I've I've just been reading the final draft of a a novel that was written by a student of mine who grew up in Uganda, or at least spent much of her early life in Uganda. And it's totally interesting and simultaneously totally alien from me because I didn't know anything about Uganda until I read this novel. And I really want this novel to be published somewhere. I hope so. She has an, she has an agent. And it's because we, the things that other people in other cultures go through, we need to know about that. We need to understand, um, how to help them. We need to understand who they are. We need to understand how to connect. One of the things I loved about teaching when I was teaching at the University of California at Riverside was the diversity of my student creative writing population. It was much more diverse than it was in in Ames, Iowa, because some of my students were, many of my students were immigrants and they ha- they all had incredibly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Incredibly dramatic stories to tell. And my only job was to teach them how to tell those stories in a way that a publisher would accept. Now, once the book gets out into the world, you have no understanding or ability to decide how it's going to be received if you're the writer, but you at least want to get it out into the world and hope for the best. 
Writing is your life. As we said, you explained at the outset, it, it was your way of gaining an education and also for your readers of their gaining an education, as writers were for you. But could mm-hmm. we finish with your latest work? Uh, we know of your passion for horses, uh, absolute passion for horses. Uh, have we got mm-hmm. a thriller with a with a uh, characters um, and horses involved? What's your latest work, please, Jane? <laughs> Well, the the most recent uh, novel came out a year ago, and it's called The Dangerous Business, and it's about 1850s Monterey, which is near where I live. Um, and I chose to write about two young women who are uh, who work in a brothel, and that's because they don't really have any other access to jobs. And so then I explored their life, their jobs, and what they see around them. And it, it, I, I actually enjoyed writing it, I have to say. <laughs> now, my my newest novel is going to be out in April, on April 23rd. And that is a, a an autobiography of me if I had been a musician rather than a writer. And that's set mostly in St. Louis. What a wonderful premise. And <laughs> is it very much rooted in uh, what could have been, Jane? If only I had been able, if only I had made myself practice, you know. My my family was full of music lovers. And we, we always sang when I was growing up around the piano. And I always said I wanted to take lessons, but then I would go take lessons and then I wouldn't do any practicing. And so, no, I did not learn to be a musician, but I always, I always loved music. And I think music is very, oh, I don't know, energizing. And so um, it, it, that's what it's about, I guess. When you contrast that with the hours a day you spend writing, um, have you actually just sort of hit on the essence really for the artist, do what one's compelled to do? Well, I think that's true. I mean, when I was growing up, it was all about reading. Um, I loved reading, and my mom really encouraged me. She never stopped me. I, I would, I would read under the covers with a flashlight, and I was reading stuff like the Bobsy Twins, you know. And then I grew up, and I read more. I went to a good private school, and was introduced to famous writers like Charles Dickens and um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read. And finally, thanks to um, our mutual friend, I said, oh, well, why not? I'm going to try this. And um, that's, that was that. <laughs> 